Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Board games have long been a source of social activity and family entertainment, but my guest today makes the case that board games can be more than just a way to while away the time. It can also offer insights about relationships, decision-making, and changing currents of culture. His name is Jonathan Kay. He's the co-author of the book, Your Move, What Board Games Can Teach Us About Life. We begin our conversation discussing the board game renaissance that has taken place in the past 20 years and how today's board games are much more nuanced, complex, and arguably more fun than the classic games you probably played as a kid. Jonathan and I then discuss how the evolution of the board game life can teach us insights to our culture's changing ideas of virtue and how board games often reflect the attitudes of a given time. We then discuss what cooperative games like Pandemic tell us about how to handle overbearing people and how the game Dead of Winter highlights the way private interests often conflict with group interest. Jonathan shares why Monopoly is such a divisive game and whether board games can teach resilience. At the end of the show, Jonathan gives his personal recommendations for board games to check out that are way better and the shoots and ladders type games you played growing up. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash board games. Jonathan Kay, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you uh, co-authored a book called Your Move, What Board Games Teach Us About Life. So what was the impetus behind this book? Have you been a, a longtime board gamer and you decided to, to bust this book out? So I played a lot of games when I was in my teenage years, and then I had kids and work and stuff like that. And as my kids got older and I had a little bit more time, I came back to it, which is not an uncommon pattern among gamers. A lot of the most passionate gamers I know were huge gamers in college and then didn't touch them for like 20 years. And so sometimes you'll go and there'll be like at tournaments, you'll see 50 year olds playing with sort of 25 year olds who've just picked it up. So you often see that sort of generational lag. And as with many things that you come back to later in life, you become way more analytical and passionate about it. And you're telling everybody about it. And after every game I'd play, I'd <laughs> sort of hold forth and talk about all these social implications of the game. And I, I realized that these games I was playing were inspiring me to write in my head at least, sort of miniature essays about what these games said about the human condition. And it was just a question of putting those down on paper. Well, I mean, I think games are a really great way to explore these different human elements or human issues because a lot of, I mean, if you think about it, if you take a step back, a lot of what we do in life is like a game, right? There are rules you have to follow in order for that thing to happen. Like take like a courtroom, for example, right? There are rules to that game that you have to follow in order for that trial to go as it's supposed to go. And a game, like a board game, allows you to do that where with low stakes. Yeah, it becomes like a testing ground for that sort of thing. And it's also the case that the way the human brain works is when we become goal-directed, the same kind of synapses fire off regardless of how trivial the goal is. So when people talk about making money or, you know, taking care of their family or, you know, really important goals, sometimes your brain is activated in the same way when you're playing a game because you've convinced yourself that it's really important to, to win this trivial game. And so you're able to study yourself in these situations of stress and competition, even though the stakes are either, you know, low or non-existent. It's still this interesting psychological laboratory. And as we argue in the book, it's also a laboratory for organizations because some of the games we talk about are cooperative games where you're all working together toward a goal. But that cooperation is sometimes nominal as it is in many companies or media organizations or government agencies, stuff like that. So that's the kind of thing we explore in the book. So for a lot of people who are listening to this podcast who aren't big gamers, when they think of board games, they probably think of like the old standbys. 
Clue, Monopoly, The Game of Life, Scrabble. But as you guys start off in the book, in the probably like the past 20 years, there's been this quiet renaissance going on. It started in Europe. Now it's taking hold in North America of board games coming out that are like new and they're different and they're complex. So tell us about this this board game renaissance. What kickstarted it and what are how are these new games different from these old Milton Bradley standbys? So the history of board games, to simplify it a little bit, is that until roughly the 80s and 90s, you had this, what people will remember if they're old enough like me, from their rec rooms in the subculture, it's called Ameritrash. It's kind of a derisive name, but it's like, <laughs> it's like games like Clue and Monopoly, uh, Battleship, Stratego. And these are like brightly colored pieces and they appeal to kids and there were there weren't even that many of them, right? In terms of the classics, it's like you keep hearing the same couple of dozen names when people rhapsodize about the games they played in their youth. And then there was those, and then there, there was this completely other echelon of hyper-complex war games with names like Panzer Blitz and Arab-Israeli Wars and Rise and Decline of the Third Reich, which is really very complex and highly militaristic games played out on like these vast hexagonal boards, and so you had two ends of the spectrum. You had like the battleship end, and then you had these, these hyper complex games. And what you're seeing now is sort of a fusion of the two, something that's fun, like the so-called Ameritrash, and something that's also complex and strategic, like these old war games. And, and as you alluded to, it was the Europeans, largely in the eighties and nineties, who fused the two into what is now called Euro games. So if anyone is familiar with like Settlers of Catan or Ticket to Ride, uh, those, those are examples of Euro games. And, and as we, I think it's the second chapter, I argue that a lot of this is the legacy of World War II because Europeans were kind of, I'm generalizing here, but a lot of them were turned off by these hyper-militaristic, complicated games from the 70s, which were all about war. You know, this wasn't so long after the entire European continent was ravaged by World War II. And so they wanted that complexity and instead, they created the genre of game that took that complexity, but it's all about building things. Like if you look at Settlers of Catan, which is now just called Catan, maybe listeners will know it's about building settlements and cities, or Ticket to Ride is about building railway lines. So this hobbyist Euro game craze that I guess, well, it's not really a craze, it's been about 20 years now, or 25 years. It's really based on building, it's more aesthetically appealing, it's oriented more toward adults, and it fuses some of the best features of the two extremes that we saw way back in the 70s. And as you mentioned, it, it takes out a lot of like the direct, like aggressive competition. It's more of a, a right. I mean, they're, you're still competing, but it's not, it's not like risk, for example. Right. Yeah. And if you look at Settlers of Catan, I, I keep going to that example because it's accessible to people. A lot of people have maybe at least seen it played. And in Catan, there's no way to destroy the other person's settlement or city once it's been constructed, at least not in the basic version of the game. Same thing with some of these other games I've mentioned. And so you're competing, but it's an indirect form of competition. It's basically who can grow the most fastest. And in that way, it takes away some of the bitterness that you got from the old games. Like in Risk, you were actually destroying another person's army and taking over their territories. Uh, and in Monopoly, you were bankrupting people. And it's, it's actually surprising these games were so popular because they, in some cases, they really did destroy friendships. Uh, people get mad when that happens. And that kind of dynamic doesn't exist. I mean, people are still competitive in Euro games, obviously, but you don't have these metaphoric destruction of the 
enemy that you had in traditional games? So I've, I've heard of Catan. I've never played it. Like how long does a, a typical game last? Is it pretty long? So a Catan game, I think experienced, a four-player game of Catan, if you're an experienced player and, and you don't have that one person <laughs> who just like takes forever for their turn and keeps offering really long shot deals to everybody else, I'd say you could play Catan in 90 minutes to two hours. But the trend, by the way, is towards shorter games. Like I've noticed in the last couple of years, there there's more like 45-minute and 60-minute games. I think producers realize that especially for couples and maybe people who have kids and stuff like that, they might only have you know an hour or an hour and a half to play a game. They're, they're not going to play a game that they're not going to be able to finish before bedtime. All right, so these Euro games, uh, it's, there's sort of a passive, I mean, a passive competition. The whole thing's about enjoying it a little bit more. Then you also make this point, too, uh, about how games can be used to explore a culture's values that they have or they're trying to inculcate. And you, you and your co-author use the example of life, the game of life. Now, I'm sure everyone who's listening to this probably played life at one point in their life. You know, they got the cool the cool board with like the hills and you get the car and you get a wife and you get the... Well, the, the original game was called the checkered game of life. And that game was made in the Victorian era in the 19th century. And it was actually trying to like teach virtues and values. So tell us about the checkered game of life, the original version, what it was trying to do, teach, and how did that change in the 20th century? Yeah, so <laughs> it's kind of interesting because yeah, even in the construction of some of these early games, they didn't like dice because dice, it was associated with gambling. But for some reason, you were allowed to create these things. I think they're called teetotems. That's like a spinner. So even though they have the same effect as dice, it's basically a random number generator. For some reason, that was considered acceptable, whereas dice were seen as sort of <laughs> a gateway object to a life of sin. And, and I think that it's been retained in, in, in life. They, they still have that spinner. The original version, it was more like a snakes and ladders type game. And you would land on a square. <laughs> it's kind of horrifying because like the square would be, you know, you suffer a disgrace, you know, go back five squares or you lose all your money or uh, like it was really like these moral pitfalls in life. And it was all about, the lesson was that it's really easy to to sin and to do wrong things in life and to suffer a bad end and that you had to avoid all these things. Uh, it was about avoiding bad things. It's a very Victorian mindset. And then in the modern era, it just suddenly was all about making money and uh, how much money can you get? And what kind of job do you have? And how many kids do you have? Almost like, you know, this is decades ago, but sort of this like very bright Facebook style image of what life is like and very materialistic and all the Victorian moralism is gone. Uh, so it, it does roughly track the evolution of the way society has thought of what the purpose of life is. You know, it used to be in a more religious era, it was avoiding sin. And now it's more about materialism. And yeah, you talk about those snakes and ladder type games. Those are basically games where you you spin something, draw a card, spin dice, and then you move whatever it says. Roll and move. Roll, Roll move. And yeah. Move. There's really no skill to it whatsoever. It's all it's all just luck. And I mean, even that idea that life is just luck, that can teach that can kind of subtly impart things to people who play those games. So what's interesting is there's a philosophical argument about whether snakes and ladders is actually a game because it's totally deterministic, right? Like there's no free will. 
don't make decisions. You you go forward or backward depending on the roll of the dice and what you know. If there's a sometimes they call it shoots and ladders. So like, is that even a game? It's it's kind of just this random deterministic adventure that you have no control of. And yet these games are, if you want to call them games, are strangely popular. There's there's another game called Unicorn Glitterluck, which is sort of a, a modern version of Stakes and Ladders, but uh, you know, with slightly more updated atmospherics. And I see people playing that all the time. Uh, people like it. People don't necessarily always want to make decisions or engage in any kind of strategy when they play a game. I, I think some people approach games almost like a TV show. Like they're just kind of, they want to see what happens, how it ends, even if they're not actually making decisions about the game. So, you know, every game has its own subculture and people come to different games with all sorts of different psychological expectations. Yeah, the shoots and ladders games, they, like kids like them because they're easy. They drive me bonkers. So we had this game that was like big in our family for a bit. It's called Uncle Wiggly. Have you heard about Uncle Wiggly? <laughs> I don't. I don't know that one. Okay, it's hilarious. So uh, we. So what happened? Here's the backstory. We moved into our house. the The previous owners loved a whole bunch of board games, and one of them was like this '90s version of Uncle Wiggly. It's about this rabbit who has uh, rheumatism, <laughs> and he's trying to get the doctor possum to get some rheumatism ointment. And along the <laughs> okay. way, you meet these pitfalls <laughs> and creatures. Well, so we, we started playing it because like it was easy to play with our kids. And then we, so my wife and I started looking into the history of it. And apparently this thing started like in the 1920s or 1910s. So we tried that to get like, like earlier versions of it. And we got like this in like 1950s version of it. And one of the interesting things we saw, we, we sort of seeing the 1950s version compared to the 1980s is like how it got dumbed down. Like the nineteen fifty, right. like you draw these cards and to be like these like really complicated poetic couplets, and then eventually by the eighties it was just like move five spaces, and that's it. Right. Yeah, the uh, theme was drawn. <laughs> yeah, and and actually that was, uh, I mean, there was as with many things, there I think the sixties, well, seventies probably was like a low point in some ways for board games because like half the games you that were released then were just these terrible knockoffs on TV shows. So if you look in people's attics, it'll be like Happy Days, the board game, or like Laverne and Shirley, the board <laughs> game. It's just like these super terrible games that just take some, you know, generic premise, like a, a, a roll and move premise and apply like some really thin pretense of game theme, of, of TV show theme to it. And, and for many years, that's what making a game was. So at least in the Victorian era and in the early 20th century, they did invest some moralism into it. I mean, the moralism seems old-fashioned to us, but at least it was thematically interesting. Whereas, yeah, as you say, around you know, the early Cold War decades, it was it, everything got dumbed down. I wonder what the happy days like. You draw a card and like the Fonz jumps a shark is like that would. It was everything. Like I remember I, when I was a kid, we had like Pink Panther, the board game, uh, or you know, like. Probably Ninja Turtles board game. There's probably a He-Man yeah. board game. No, yeah. no, it was it was like having a breakfast cereal. You know, it was like it was just part of the sponsorship thing. And some guy was probably given like three weeks to to create the game. And and yeah, they were super crap. But that was all we had. We didn't have Euro games back then. So you know, and this was like in a four-channel universe. So people played bad games because there there wasn't that much to compete with it. One of the reasons games are better now is they're competing against Netflix. 
And if you're competing against Netflix, you got to produce a better game. All right. So there's an example of how games can reflect a culture and how that, how that's changed over the years. You also devote a chapter to how games can be a way to explore negotiation because there's these genre of Euro games where that's what you do. You just negotiate. And the ones you talk about, I've never played these before, but they sound really fun. One's called Chinatown and the other one's No Thanks. So what can, what can these games teach us about how we make decisions, particularly rational or irrational decisions? So that chapter, I wrote that chapter, and it's one of the more technical chapters because I get into something called the ultimatum game, which isn't actually it isn't actually a recreational game. It's uh, something that's used in social psychology to test whether people will cooperate with other people or whether they'll be vindictive. It's, it's, it's well known in, in the social science literature. And I talk about how some of the social science implications of that are modeled in this game, Chinatown. I describe Chinatown as like, if you like the negotiation aspect of Monopoly, but you don't like the dice rolling and, and randomness and stuff like that, Chinatown is fantastic because the, the pace of the game is that basically it just drives you straight toward negotiation. That's what like 90% of the game is. And I, I related this, this anecdote involving my friend where my friend gave me a deal, but then kind of went back on it and still offered me like a bad version of the deal. But the bad version of the deal he was offering me was, was better than no deal at all. But I was mad at him because he changed the terms of it. And I, I basically, t- I spited myself by saying no to the deal. Even though I knew I would lose the game as a result, it was more important for me in that moment that he suffer. And he lost the game too. But it hurt both of us. And I, I talk about like what is the evolutionary psychological reason that people do that? And, and what I conclude is like, because it isn't just that deal, right? I'm looking at how I'm how I'm seen by the community. This is a very abstract, of course, but it's about evolutionary psychology. And if this guy can make me a sucker once, it might be worth the short-term pain of spiting myself on that one deal. So that the next hundred times people will realize that they shouldn't shortchange me like that because I'm willing to spite myself to spite them. And so I talk about the evolutionary psychology behind that. And I think games like Chinatown and No Thanks, which is another simpler game that I talk about, I really do a good job of modeling that. So in the short term, it doesn't make sense. But in the long term, it could make sense to spite yourself. Yeah, and I guess like the the schoolyard version of that is the kid who's willing to fight the bully, even if he thinks he'll lose, just because he doesn't want to be known as someone who can get rolled. That it's worth it to get a bloody nose just so it sends a message like, you know, you're not going to get a free ride by trying to intimidate me. You you pay a short-term price as a reputation-building tool, as a warning, but it only works with repeat players. Like, like if you if you're just interacting with random strangers who you never see again, these these instincts unfortunately kick in, which is why people you know get into fistfights over parking spots and stuff like that. But even though it's completely irrational in that context, it goes to the evolutionary wiring we have, which says that you you can't just have a rep- reputation as somebody who gets rolled over. You you need to show people that you have some ability to fight back. Well, this is all about honor. That's what honor is, right? The rep- right. having a reputation. I mean, that's why people would never, whenever they got called to a duel, like you, you always said yes because you had to have that reputation that you would, you would, you wouldn't get rolled. Yeah, well, that's true. I think that's a related phenomenon. 
honor codes, which people talk about honor societies and honor codes, they are often very elaborate uh, extrapolations of, of the instinct I'm just describing, where honor becomes a kind of cult. And you do see that in, in many societies, unfortunately. It's, it, it can become a pathology if everybody's just going around challenging each other to duels and stuff like that. But it has its origins in, as I argue, uh, an evolutionary instinct that is not completely irrational. But it, like everything else in our brain, it can be taken to extremes. Are there like honor cults in board games? Well, uh, you know, you do see people who who get really upset and animated and, and, and they start fights. Those people tend to fall into two categories. They tend to be people who who like make their living playing board games. Like, you know, there are great chess players who are known to be really irascible and, and that's because this is their livelihood. And so, the, you know, there's a reason they take it so seriously. And then on the other extreme tends to be very new players who it's their first time in the hobby. It's not for them, but they don't realize it yet. And they're just, their personality isn't right for it. So it tends to be people who are either lifelong professional gamers in some board game subculture or other, or people who are first timers and don't know the protocols of board games. It, it's rarely the seasoned hobbyist because those people usually know where the boundaries are in terms of behavior. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. All right. So on, there's a genre of board games, or there is a board game that deals with, it's called Pandemic. And we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. And this, what this game is, it's a, it's a group dynamic game. Like it requires you to cooperate with other players for you to win this game. So for those who aren't familiar with it, can you describe Pandemic and sort of like how it's like other games like this? And what do you think you can teach people about group dynamics? So Pandemic, one of the reasons it's such a popular game is it was an early favorite in a genre that's known as cooperative games. And a cooperative game, as distinct from a competitive game, is a game where you all have the same objective. You either win or you lose together. So in a typical competitive game, if I win, you lose. In a cooperative game, we either win together or lose together. And the theme in Pandemic is that the world is being uh, besieged by all these terrible plagues, and you know, one person is a doctor, and another person is like a military officer, and another person is some kind of global leader. And you have to cooperate in order to to destroy the pandemic and save the world. And as I say, you either win together or lose together. The I think one of the guys who might have been the creator of the game just wrote a piece for the New York Times about the implications of the game in the modern world because we are living in that kind of society now. What we talk about in our chapter is how cooperative games are fun, but there's a common pitfall, and it's a common pitfall that applies to a lot of common projects in life, which is what is known, the term of art in board gaming is the alpha player problem. And the alpha player problem is where it's nominally a cooperative game and it's a team game and everyone's contributing, but really what's happening is that one person who's more assertive or more experienced or thinks he's more experienced and knowledgeable, just tells everybody else what to do. And so he or she is the only person who has agency, and everyone else is just following his or her orders. And that has become a common problem in some of these cooperative games. And there you could also be like a freeloader problem, right? Like you just have a guy that just doesn't even, is not even doing anything and just lets everyone else do all the work. 
Yeah. I mean, you could have that. That typically happens when you have somebody who didn't want to play in the first place, right? I think in economics, that problem is sometimes described as moral hazard. Or, you know, you also have, I guess the inverse of it is tragedy of the commons. However, when people are playing board games, it's unlike life in the sense that we don't self-select into life, right? We're born into this world and that's it. We just, it's not our choice. Board games are a little different because everyone who's playing a board game made the conscious decision to say, I'm going to play this game. And typically you don't play a game with the intention of not doing anything. The more common problem in board gaming is that you want to play, but there's some guy, and unfortunately it's, it's usually a guy, is, is telling you what to do and, and you're not getting a chance to play. So, so, I mean, this probably, ha- we've probably seen this in other group dynamics where you want to contribute with some guy or some person just sucks all the air out of the room and doesn't this, let you this get This happens all, all the, the time. time in MBA programs and other university programs where it's supposed to be a group project and you show up on Monday and there's five people and it's 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20% contributions. And then by Tuesday, it's more like, you know, 30, 20, 20, 20, 10. And then by Friday, it's like 60, 40, 0, 0, 0. Like you just gradually, people start to get marginalized. In those cases, sometimes it is because they're lazy, but often it's just because there's one or two people who just take over the project. You see this all the time in life. So what's the solution? Like what can gaming, like the pandemic teach us about Uh, overcoming that? Yeah. Well, this is why people have to buy the book. We <laughs> describe how modern game designers get around this alpha player problem by taking away something from the alpha player. So one thing you can take away from the alpha player is time. So you have a game where there's a time limit. You actually have like, you're using your phone as, as a timer for each move. And everyone has to do different things. And the alpha player might only have like 30 seconds to do his or her turn. They don't have time to tell the other three players what they should be doing. Everyone is racing around trying to do their own thing. And this this applies to organizations. If you have an organization where a boss is micromanaging everybody, one reason that could happen is because the boss doesn't have a lot of work to do. And so micromanages everybody else. You give that boss more actual work to do and you find the micromanagement stops. Another thing you can do is take away trust, which sounds bad, which is bad in a real world setting, but in a game makes more fun. So one game we describe is called Dead of Winter. My co-author loves that game and wrote a great chapter about it. And in Dead of Winter, it's a zombie apocalypse game where you're a survivor of a zombie apocalypse. And you have this public objective, which is the cooperative objective, where you know the group has to survive. But then each of you has this secret private objective, which often is, is at odds with the public objective. So there's no alpha player because... To be an alpha player, you have to have all the information everybody else does. If they have their own agendas, you can't tell them what to do. So it's a really interesting solution to the alpha player problem, albeit a solution that that's horrifying in real life because in real life, you want everybody to have the same mission. But unfortunately, as in many organizations, there is a publicly professed universal objective, but then everybody has their own little secret agenda that they're conniving at behind the scenes. Right. When the chapter on Dead of Winter, the, the games where there's cooperative plus a private personal goal, I was like, that sounds awesome. Because I just, I love the idea, because it sounds like true to life, right? Like everyone, like you just said, like every organization has this stated public goal, but every person in that group, while they are you know working for that public goal, they each have their own thing going on that they're privately trying to do. And I was like, that's like real life. Yeah. And it, it unfortunately, it is like real life. And One point we make in the chapter is that if you go to a bookstore, there's lots of books about 
managing conflicts. And, and that's an important skill. But cooperative board games teach us that a lot of the dissatisfaction that people experience in organizations is not really the result of outwardly expressed conflict because they all have the same objective, which is, you know, make money, maintain the health of the organization, serve the customer, et cetera, et cetera. The real friction comes in these unstated, sometimes passively aggressive disputes where the common objective masks the fact that everyone has their own little private agendas. And sometimes the private agenda, it's just about, it goes back to the alpha player problem. It's that they feel isolated in their desires to try and pursue the public objective. Like they're just being marginalized because someone is taking all their work because they don't trust them to do a good job. Or So board games, especially this cooperative genre of board games, I feel it gives a really nuanced view into the way a lot of us experience the somewhat unspoken stresses that occur within organizations, even when everybody has the same objective. All right, so Dead of Winter was the name of that game. Dead of Winter, yeah, really Dead good of game. Dead of Winter, yeah, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna go buy that. That sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so we can't have a, a podcast about board games and not talk about the board game that people either love or love to hate. That's Monopoly, right? So first, last about why do you think this game like causes such strident divisions amongst people and game players? Well, it's a it's a paradox because as we argue, Monopoly would never be produced today. It breaks so many rules of good board game design that it's a wonder that it's so popular. And if somebody, if it didn't exist and someone came to a game producer and said, Hey, I've got this great idea for a game, it wouldn't be produced because it has a lot of problems with it. The main problem with Monopoly, which you would never see with a modern Euro game, is that people get eliminated from the game. So it might be a three hour game, but one guy gets eliminated after an hour and he just spends the next two hours being pissed off at his friends because, and, wa- and watching someone play Monopoly. Yeah. Which is not fun. It, it, no, it's, it's horrible, especially when you know you've been eliminated from that game. And so, like, you know, no matter how badly you do in Catan, you finish the game at exactly the same time as the guy who wins. And that's, that's true of all good modern board game designs. So there's a rule right there. The other problem with Monopoly is that it has the same problem as actually a lot of winner-take-all economies and that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And there's no mechanism for reversing that. So as you know, in Monopoly, it's in engineering, we call this uh, an unstable dynamical mechanism, but you, you have a situation where when you land on someone's hotel, not only do you have to give them your money, but you may have to mortgage your properties and sell off your own houses and hotels at 50% value because that's what the rules say. And so you're not just making the other person richer, you're compromising your own value to make money. And the analogy here is that, you know, if, if you lose out to a competitor in real life in your sector, you know, you may have to sell your car. And when you sell your car, you can't run your business or you lose your house and then, you know, you're homeless and your life goes down in a sort of spiral. Like there's no safety net. And Monopoly is a game with no safety net. And there's no, there's very few mechanisms in the game that allow a person to get back into the game when they're losing. Whereas modern g- games have that, like in, in Catan, you have this thing called the robber, which sounds bad, but I joke that it should be called the icon of social justice because the robber typically victimizes the player that's winning because the other three players will put it on that player's most productive property. Whereas there's, there's, there's very little of that in Monopoly. And 
the reason people stick money in free parking, which by the way is not in the rules, but it's become this sort of folk rule that says, okay, we'll have all this big pot of money. It'd be like a lottery. The reason people do that is it allows people that are losing to get back in the game. It's like people have created this folk solution to a problem in Monopoly. And we have collectively decided that this is how we're going to solve that problem. It's still a terrible game and I don't like it and I don't recommend it, but it's better maybe with the lottery in the middle than without it. Well, that's something you and your co-author talk about with some of these, you know, old standby games that people have actually modified the rules right. to make them more palatable or make them more fun and engaging or just different. I mean, so Monopoly, yeah, there's the free parking rule. I think in life, you talk about people like they're, they're selling kids, which is, is terrible. You wouldn't do that in real life, but it's like, well, it, it's something different. It's not, it, it adds some spice to the game, makes it a little bit more fun. Well, <laughs> the reason people sell kids to each other is... It's such a great way of undermining the bright and shiny bourgeois normalness that the game <laughs> exudes, right? Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's transgressive and, and, and people like being right. transgressive. But by the way, life, I don't want to be a gaming snob, but life is not a game that, that like serious gaming hobbyists play. If you're playing life, it's typically because you're out with your friends, you're having a few drinks or, you know, you're playing with your kids or something. Like it's, it's a, it's a fun game to, to screw around with, you know, you would never find this kind of customizing of rules on this casual basis done in like, you know, among serious chess players, for instance, or uh, serious backgammon players or something like that, or, or even serious Scrabble players. You know, this is a, this is a sort of, of screwing around you see in, in very casual gaming subcultures. So with these games, like there are, there's, what makes a game fun is that there is an element of failure to it. Like you, you, you you can't win all the time and you know doing this for as long as you have do you think your experience like failing in board games has it carried over to the rest of your like i mean has it made like what i'm trying to say is has have board games sort of been exercised for resiliency or do you think that there's no crossover so i think yeah resilience is it's an important um characteristic especially when it comes to kids it's something i try and teach my kids i think it's something everyone is now trying to teach their kids I think it depends on your personality, what you're going to get out of it. In my case, one huge thing is because of the way board game subculture works, among hobbyists, there is this, it's not required, but it happens a lot where you play the game and then as you're piece, putting the pieces back in the box, you spend like 10 minutes analyzing the game and it's sort of like, ah, oh, yeah, I thought I was going to win, but then you got control of this space. And then I realized that I had to take this risk and the risk didn't go well. And then this, you know, and a lot of people hate that. Like when I play with, there are certain people I play with who are like, you know, John, the game's over. Like, you know, let's talk about something else. But there's other people who the discussion literally will sometimes go on almost as long as the game itself. And I, I'm, I'm that kind of person it is I love the post game analysis. That habit of mind has totally influenced the way I live. It's influenced the way I do my job. It's influenced the way I parent that if something doesn't go right, I try and ask myself, like, say, Hey, look, I wasn't snakes and ladders. I was playing, you know, I made decisions in that game. What were the decisions I made that were good? And what were the decisions that were bad? And because I play a lot of board games and I'm in that habit, I now just do that in every aspect of my life. And it can, it can be super annoying to others when you think out loud, like, you know, why did I get ripped off at that supermarket? Let's look at the 17 reasons. But it can also lead you to get 
lessons from stuff that formerly would have just caused you resentment and anger. Yeah, it sounds like the games, like they give you a mental model to think about your life or different situations in your life. Yeah, and and by the way, some not that model is not always reassuring. Like, right. If you lose a game because of bad luck that you couldn't control, that can make you fatalistic if you apply that to the rest of life. Most of the time, though, when you lose a game, uh, like a strategy game, the kind of game that maybe we talk about more in the in the book, uh, there's a reason. And it's a reason that you had control of. Now, you can take that too far and just like turn that into a cult of self-recrimination and say, oh, I made, I made those four mistakes, you know, stupid, stupid, stupid. But that's not the way you want to approach it. You want to say, hey, look, I'm glad those mistakes came in this game. Games are fun. There's, you know, no one got hurt and it's, they're designed to be low stakes, low stakes. Uh, my, my co-author has this, uh, this metaphor that, you know, games are, they create this sort of circle, the circle. And if you stand in that circle, you can experiment and you can have fun and you can try new things and you know, it's just a game. And you're in this environment where, you know, you can try and be aggressive or passive or fooling people. You're not bound by, by all the same rules that govern your personality outside of that circle. And if you're smart or if you're adventurous, uh, you will use that experience to field test ideas and strategies for dealing with life that you can then apply when the stakes are higher in real life. All right. So a lot of people are stuck at home. Are there any games for people who are just starting, who want to get started in this, like this Euro game genre? Any ones you recommend checking out that are, that are easy to learn and and fun to play? So I generally start people off with shorter games because if it's kind of like everything else, uh, it's kind of like going to the gym is you don't start people off with like a three hour workout, right? You might start them off with a 45 minute workout. And there's a game called Splendor that I really like. It came out a few years ago. It's not the greatest game in the world, but it's fairly short. It's like 45 minutes. And there's a lot of, it doesn't take up a lot of table space. You can play with two or three players. I think it's best with four. It's a good game in that respect. There's a game called Can't Stop, which is has this very simple premise. It's a dice game and it's so much fun. It's an underplayed game. That game is usually over in a half an hour. Can't Stop is a really good one. It has some Euro trashy elements, like it's plastic and it, it, you know, bright primary colors. So the aesthetics are kind of like these games from the seventies, like Battleship, but it's, it's a fun game and there's more strategy in it than people think. There's a game called Azul, A-Z-U-L, which is in that 45 minute genre and has a very tactile feel. It has, it's almost like you're playing with tiles and mosaics, which click together in this fun way. A lot of people like the tactile element of a game. Sagrada is another game in that category. You're making stained glass windows, very visual. Well, Jonathan, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? So they can just Google the book, which is, is Your Move. My name is Jonathan Kay, and my co-author's name is Joan Moriarty. And the book's available on Amazon and all the usual places. My Twitter handle is J-O-N-K-A-Y. I don't tweet that much about board games, but when people tweet at me for recommendations, I always, always make a point of responding to them. My DMs are open, and I love talking about board games. And then, well, Jonathan Kay, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today is Jonathan Kay. He's the co-author of the book, Your Move. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also check out our show notes at aom.is slash board games, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic.
Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanless.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you would like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout to get a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Thank you.